The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. with your firewall and listen up it's time for another stellar edition of dotnet rocks the internet audio talk show for dotnet developers with carl franklin and rory Plight. this is karen cavallero here to announce show number 60 recorded live april 16th with guests harry pearson and keith please dotnet rocks is brought to you by franklin's net training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on BB.net and ASP.net classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.net web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine. Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, a man whose dreams have recently been invaded by a six-foot pissed-off mouse, Carl Franklin. (laughs) Thanks, Karen. Thanks, everybody, and uh, welcome to another stellar edition of .NET Rocks. I'm Carl, as always, and uh, today I'm in Orlando, Florida, uh, hence the mouse joke. Thanks, Karen. Um, and uh, yeah, it's true. I had, a, I had a dream about Mickey Mouse. While I'm here um, doing the Dev Connection show, I just got here a little bit early. Uh, uh, and there, there's a reason for that, too, which I'll tell you right after I introduce my, my co-host, my partner in crime, Mr. Rory Blythe. Hey, man, what's up? Hello. How's it going? How's New London today? Uh, New London is actually really sunny today. I saw rain like I'd never seen before in my entire life on Monday and Tuesday, and uh, it all completely went away, and today is just gorgeous. So, oh, that's and, nice. I, I mean, I'm from Portland. I'm from the West Coast, temperate rainforest, and you think I'd seen it all, but right. it was absolutely incredible. I had to come home and change my jeans because <laughs> it, it was like I'd been wading in a small pond. Well, uh, the so, reason I'm down here, actually, uh, is because I was... You know, I could have come tomorrow or the next day, but um, well, Saturday anyway. But I, I was speaking at a couple of different user groups, one in Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, the other one in Evansville, Indiana, and they were back-to-back. Like one was Tuesday night and the other was Wednesday night. And so rather than, rather than go home for a day and then come down here again, I figured I'd just come down and, you know, sort of enjoy the resort. I mean, it's, it's the Hyatt, you know. Resort because the the resort down here it's pretty awesome, Grand Cypress. So I love it because like the pools and the hot tubs are open twenty four hours, so it's great. Like two a.m. last night, I go down to the hot tub outside. Beautiful night, not a cloud in the sky. Turn on the bubbles. 
It's different. It's different than New London. <laughs> like we have a hot tub at the Radisson in New London, but it's got the – I'm not going to say it's got skeeve, but you know what I mean. It's like an indoor <laughs> hot tub and, and, you know, it feels really humid and stuff and it's it's kind of weird. It's indoors. Out here, you know, you're outside. It's, you know, like stone. It's carved out of stone. And uh, this guy comes by. And, you know, from New London, I'm thinking, oh, man, he's going to tell me to get out of the tub because it's closed, you know. And he goes, sir, you want me to put on bubbles for you? I'm like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can I get you a drink? I'm like, all right. <laughs> huh. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So uh, we had some real fans in Huntsville, Alabama and uh, in Evansville, Indiana. In fact, when uh, Lori picked me up in Huntsville at the airport. She uh, she said, you know, here's a little gift bag for you from the group, and there's something in there for your for your two daughters. And I'm like, oh, you know, I have daughters. And she says, oh, dude, I listen to the show every week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, she was a big fan. And she said, oh man, Rory had some tough times this week, didn't he? You know, yeah. she started talking about you. And it's just very strange to to have this connection with people all over the United States. It's very cool though. And uh, that, of course, uh, really cool. uh, Bart uh, picked me up from Evansville, Indiana, wearing a .NET Rocks t-shirt. Sweet. Pretty sweet. Well, anyway, uh, what's been happening with you this week? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) man. This was like the craziest week that I've had all year, I think. I mean, it was was very up and down, you know? I mean, as a lot of people know, there was the whole issue about the... Well, I I guess what Ted Neward is now calling Rory Gate. Not a lot of people know about it, though. I mean, it's just a very small percentage of our listeners that actually go out on the blogs and I think and and listen and read that stuff. Yeah, that that's possible. So the the confusion was over how I got to the MVP summit not being an MVP. And of course I was sent under the regional director program. It was all perfectly legit. I was invited, etc. But some people didn't know that and you know there was a post made There was which, some fingers pointing going there, on. There there was some finger pointing. And I was sort of made the poster child of this what's wrong with the MVP program movement. And it was really and, ridiculous. I mean, it got out. Yeah, it, got it, out it of was hand. ridiculous. It got way out of hand. It, it was all over the blogosphere, and um, I was kind of getting railed on. But it's all been resolved, and public apologies have been issued, and there's no hard feelings there. But it just happened to coincide with some, you know, relationship troubles that I was having with the girlfriend, and also with this weird abdominal pain. Oh. So, so. Mm. Well, you so know, it, uh, it, I think it was, cele- it was like you'll all this stuff. Just, that celebrity status is something that that's new to Rory. Oh, it's it's very new to me. Yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't usually bother me. I'm I'm used to the usual. I mean, I get the occasional email that's like, "Hey, you're a jerk," you yeah, know. So right. <laughs> I'm used to that. But it's just when everything descends at the same time. Yeah. And and especially when I'm feeling a little bit sick, like I ha- I mean, I'm really like tired and sort of listless this week. Mm. That's what makes it tough. But on on other fronts, things have, things have actually been pretty good. Mm. You know, work got good this week. I'm I'm getting out of the acronym fog. Ah. I'm, getting, I'm getting out of that you know, discombobulating newness that, that comes with each and every job where you don't quite know what anybody's talking about and almost everything is being spoken of in, in three letter words. And, yeah. and I'm finally realizing what a lot of that is. And so this week has actually been pretty fun. They've got me working on some fun stuff. So that's been good. Bonded with some of the coworkers last night over the last episode of the apprentice. All right. Yeah. It it, it was good stuff. It's, it's been a very up and down week, but I'm, I'm back on the up. I'm just very tired. That's good. That's good. Well, uh, Rory, let me read some mail here. We got a few, a few shouts. Um, not a whole lot, but a few. 
this one is from Clark Valberg. How you doing, Clark? He says, I listen to your show every week without fail, and every week I hear the senseless emails of eager listeners attempting to earn themselves free .NET Rocks useless <laughs> crap. I figured I'd try my hand out at asking for a handout. So, you know, he's not like consult, you know, like saying, oh, all well, those people, you know, they're just, they're not calling with anything to say. It's not like he's, you know, trying to set himself apart or anything. <clears throat> he says, right, to further like, qualify to my too, case, so. I'm moving into a brand new apartment this Sunday and I need something to uh, to line my shiny new lacquered cabinet shelves. Hint, <laughs> mug. <laughs> Keep on fighting for the hearts and minds of developers everywhere. Has this line been used before or am I just oh so clever? Clark Valberg, <laughs> IntelliSite's web design. Hey, Clark, we'll definitely send you a mug for that sucking up. <laughs> and... Uh, Jay Kimball had something to say about uh, the show last week. He says, Dear Rory and Carl, what a great episode of .NET Rocks. Bob has a Bob Wrestleman, which I'm sorry, I pronounced your name wrong, Bob. It's Wrestleman, not Rieselman. That was my fault. Uh, Bob Wrestleman has a perspective on development life that I hadn't really considered before. I've been listening for a couple months now. I've been a Carl Franklin groupie for a couple years. Actually, I have fond memories of the V-Bits where Carl, a friend of mine, and I were driving around the streets of Orlando looking for something to eat about 3 a.m. in the morning after a midnight madness. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Please send me some useless crap or I'll start evangelizing the Linux masses to start using <laughs> .NET. Jay Kimball. P.S. Thank you, Rory, for the influx of web traffic to my blog. My 15 minutes of fame have been fun. Cool. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so just a couple of, couple of shouts. And um, we have two guests uh, this week, Rory. Yeah. And uh, because of that, we we want to give them equal time, so we're going to just uh, make some room in the first part here where we normally go on and blather on with different things. We're going to sort of cut that short. Yeah. Okay, Rory, I want to say something to you. Okay. Before we get started. Uh, System.component model. Yes. Uh, so I want to just go ahead and introduce my guests. Uh, we have uh, on the phone Keith Please and Harry Pearson. Starting with Harry, uh, as an architect as part of Microsoft's D&PE architecture strategy team, Harry is in charge of interfacing with the architect community. In this role, Harry focuses both on overall architecture strategy as well as on broad-reach targeting of architects in companies of all sizes. Previously, Harry was an architect and developer evangelist for Microsoft's Industry Solutions Group, focusing on the vertical markets such as public sector and financial services. Harry also worked for Microsoft Consulting Services in Southern California. Prior to joining Microsoft, Harry worked at a variety of system integrators and software development companies where he focused on data-driven systems. Welcome, Harry. Thanks. Hey, Harry. And uh, Keith Please is one of the founders of Guided Design and has worked for more than two years on the team developing the .NET framework, developing the .NET framework in Visual Studio .NET. Keith is an internationally known writer and speaker and is the editorial chair for VS Live 2004. He's also a contributing editor to Visual Studio Magazine, has developed Microsoft professional certification exams, and uh, Keith also serves as a member of the INETA board and is the liaison for the INETA Speakers Bureau. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. So we're talking architecture today. Um, yes, no, yes. Yes. Yeah. That's my I hope so. That's what I know about. <laughs> Good. Good. It's actually something that we haven't really dive dove into 
on this show before, and I'm really glad you're here. Um, so Harry, let's start with the arch- we're gonna Harry's gonna provide the architect's sort of perspective, and Keith is gonna uh, provide more of the developer's perspective on this on these issues. But uh, Harry, let me just ask you, what is Microsoft's D and P E stand for? D. We have a we seem to have a new thing. I've seen several groups at Microsoft who have the ampersand in their TLA names. You know, so the 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 TLA with an accurate with an ampersand is a, is a, seems to be a new trend I'm catching on to. Uh, D and PE stands for Developer and Platform Evangelism. It is the group at Microsoft that is primarily around getting the word out, evangelizing our platform. Uh, you're probably very familiar with uh, some small names like Jeff Sanquist and and Robert Scoble. I know nobody here has probably ever heard of those guys. Never. Yeah. <laughs> they're uh, they're compatriots of mine in the Longhorn evangelism community efforts. And so I do a similar role uh, to them. I'm actually a peer of their boss, Len Pryor, uh, for the, on the architecture side. Okay. Cool. And so uh, what is it that you guys do there? I mean, uh, let's, I mean, if we were to meet in the elevator and, you know, hey, what do you do at Microsoft? Wrap it up for me. Well, I'll tell you, I think a, a lot of what it comes down to is that there's, we think that there's big change coming. Right, you've heard the acronym of SOA, service-oriented architecture. Everybody's out there talking about it. Yeah. There's a lot of sort of wonder and curiosity as to exactly what's that going to do to the way we build systems today. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think that there's big change coming. And what we're trying to do in our group is help with architectural guidance, help with you know what's going to happen and why is it going to happen, and to help our customers be able to get through this relatively big change that we see coming with a minimum amount of effort. Now, you know, with big change, typically big change involves, you know, a lot of effort, a lot of cost, a lot of pain and suffering sometimes. So it's not to say that we can do it without any kind of uh, of difficulty, but to be able to do it to minimize a lot of that hardship. Because what we're finding today is that, you know, companies have built systems in a very stovepipe fashion, yeah. and we're beginning to sort of stitch them together using technologies, EAI types of technologies, in a very manual fashion. Can you define EAI for me, for the listeners? Enterprise application integration. Okay. Uh, BizTalk Server, of course, from Microsoft is a big player here. Uh, we have a lot of competitive products in that space, uh, web methods, and uh, a lot of the stuff from IBM also fits into that sort of EAI kind of bucket. The problem with this kind of approach is that we're essentially manually reinventing the wheel for every project. Right. And, you know, there are those who've been out there talking about the sort of we're at the end of the information changes and what have you. And, and I, I, I disagree with that 100%. I think. What do they say? That we're sort of at the. That we've made as much innovation in computers as we're going to. Oh, no way. Wow. You know, that a lot of the, and a lot of this obviously comes from Microsoft competitors, that the net PC, the browser is the end of the user interface innovation. I mean, all this kind of, of talk is all around essentially what you've got in computers today is it. We're done. I think they're tr- trying to hold on to their jobs and, you know, justify their lack of imagination, if you ask me. Are you saying that handhelds aren't going to get any better? Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm saying that that's the kind of of talk that I've heard. Well, it's yeah. sort of like people saying the Model T is the end all be all of exactly. the automotive craze. So. And so, yeah, we're just getting started. If you yeah. ask me. And if you see, in fact, and, and I agree with that. In fact, there was it was very interesting. We actually got uh, John Zachman from the Zachman Institute to come speak to us at uh, Microsoft's internal conference last year, and he said something that was really interesting. He said that 
during the Industrial Revolution, about 2% of the infrastructure survived. The other 98% was either replaced or retrofitted to support the new ways of doing things in the Industrial Revolution. And I think we're at essentially the very, very beginnings of the Information Revolution, mm-hmm. which is sort of a scary implication if you think that 98% of the information infrastructure, drawing the parallel to the Industrial Revolution, that 98% of the information rev, uh, infrastructure is going to need to be retrofitted and or replaced. Yeah, that's a bit scary. Could be bumpy. Yeah. Right. And so that's what, that's what our team is, is doing, is talking about why is it changing? Right. So to say, you know, what's what's the benefit? Right. I mean, you don't just change the stuff for fun of it. Right. There's got to be a a big benefit on the other side. And then how can we get there from here with the minimum amount of pain? And that's where a lot of where the the patterns of practices group, which is who Keith works with primarily these days, Mm -hmm. comes into play that that you have, you know, again, we talk sort of about why what's going to happen and why is it going to happen? And a lot of what the the patterns guys and the practices guys are doing, how are you going to get there from here? Keith, uh, Keith, you you had something you wanted to say. Yeah, um, the John Zachman fellow. Uh, you know, keep in mind this is a guy who presents using viewfoils. <laughs> That's using, true. You, using what? He, he yeah. still uses an overhead projector. This whole like oh, wow. PowerPoint projector, like digital projector thing. He doesn't do any of that. <laughs> and for some of the younger people, they're probably going to have to hit eBay and look up you know pro- overhead projector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, let me ask you this, uh, Harry. What um, I mean, I'm not speaking for myself because I know the answer. But for the listener out there who says, "Oh, this is just another division at Microsoft that you know thinks they have some sort of expertise," you know, they set up, they get an official title, and then they hire some people who who are figuring things out. And you know, what what gives you guys in that group the qualifications or the 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 expertise to? to, uh, you know, impose architectural practices on the rest of the world? We don't impose into architectural practices. Or to suggest, whatever that is you guys do, you obviously come up with architecture designs and, 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 uh, and things. What, are, what is it that gives you your expertise or experience? We, spend, we essentially have three teams on this uh, sort of sub-teams. We have sort of the, the strategy team, the customer-proof team, and the marketing team. So the strategy team, they're, you know, the big thinker types. Right, they're spending a lot of their time working on these kind of problems. One of the probably the best known member of that group is a gentleman named Pat Helland. Pat Helland essentially was one of the co-inventors of Microsoft Transaction Server. Mm. You know, a small little teeny technology that completely revolutionized the way that we built distributed systems. Right, and so we 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 have people like that in this group that are thinking through some of the next generation of these kinds of problems around loosely coupled. service-oriented systems, how are we going to do those kind of things. We also then turn around and we take a lot of these concepts and we go out and prove them with customers. So Hmm. a lot of, uh, for example, we've had a a group of people who've been working on smart client applications over the course of the last fiscal year for Microsoft, working with customers like Thompson. In fact, there's a case study of the work we did with Thompson up on the serverside.net right now. And then we take that learnings and we help funnel that through the patterns and practices group. So a lot of the learnings about smart client offline applications that is surfaced in the offline application block came from our team. Now obviously huh. it's not a one per, it's not a it's not one team's effort, right? I don't mean to make it sound like that. It's it's a team effort and it's not something in fact we don't have the the resources on our team to push through to the level of 
of you know to be able to design a reusable application block uh, without you know the assistance of, of a group like Patterns and Practices. Those guys did a great job taking what we did and you know pushing it forward to make it something that everybody can use. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's a real team effort, but that's it. So it's again, it's about providing guidance, but right. it's also about providing guidance that's we've proven in the real world. What kinds of uh, or what companies have you done architectures and applications for that have ended up you've ended up using? Well, the ones who are on Smart Client are primarily Dell and uh, uh, the Thompson Financials. I don't work with that group as much, so I'm not as familiar with all the other customers that we have. Those are just the two ones that I'm primarily yeah, familiar with. I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, they're small companies, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, we have a third group, which is marketing, which is around getting you know, this information out to broad-reach customers. We used to focus primarily on sort of the top you know, 1% or so, the, the strategic architects, if you will. Right. And over the course of the last fiscal year, we've really evolved – and we're starting to target, you know, not just architects with a capital A, but everybody who cares about architecture. And with this kind of a big change coming around service-oriented architecture, essentially that's pretty much everybody, which is part of the reason I'm really excited to be on this show is because it's not just about architecture is something that architects care about. Architecture right. is something that's going to affect pretty much, you know, when you start thinking about numbers like that 98% number, that's going to affect everybody. It's not just going to be, you know, the architectural review board who sits up on an ivory tower and does stuff. It's going to affect everybody up and down the chain. Yeah. Uh, Keith, you had a question? Um, yeah, Harry was talking about uh, smart client, and that's um, – I'd be interested in hearing Harry's comment about this. The message that went out around dev days uh, just recently was that the smart client was the new evolution of the rich, you know, Windows Forms client you know, coupled with the great download model of, of web apps. And then all of a sudden I've been hearing uh, a bunch of stuff saying, well, Smart Client also includes Office. And I've heard that too, yeah. Yeah, and that's, and I really wanted to hear, you know, Harry uh, maybe comment on the integration of Office into these things because, you know, a lot of us came from, you know, the business process side of things. We did Office-based solutions and now, we're you know we're computer science programmer types and uh, Office is a little a little different. Yeah. Well, and we're integrating a lot of tools into Office these days, right? If you look at what Office can do in the 2003 release versus what it's been able to do sort of traditionally, there's a lot of work being done around the Office developer, as you said, the business process people uh, that that we're sort of putting in there. So, you know, the X, the deep XML capabilities which gives you the ability to then integrate around service-oriented, well, with web services, which is the common way to do service-oriented architecture. The, you know, if you're going to sit down and build an application that does financial analysis, do you really want to write your own in Windows forms? Probably not. You're much better off just leveraging Excel. And so we've got tools like Visual Studio Tools for Office that allow us to leverage this power on the desktop, uh, be it Sometimes that power is things like, well, there's local processing power and there's local storage power and there's the graphical you know, processing unit and all that kind of stuff. But power also indicates, is also meaning the, the applications you've already got running on that machine that people are very familiar with. So providing an Excel-based interface to a financial expert is a very natural way of surfacing information. But it's, again, you've got to do it in a way that's not a stovepipe. 
So how do I take my exchange information and my Excel information, excuse me, and tie that into the rest of my business systems? So Harry, most people are are hearing your, you know, the the issue there of service-oriented architecture and saying, okay, so we use web services next. So I mean, it's obviously not that simple. What um, what do you think about about that? Well, I think that there's the term service-oriented architecture and web services because because you're very likely to use them together. People have sort of combined them as to one entity, right? And I think that that's a mistake. We've been doing lots of the types of things of service-oriented architecture for many, many years. Uh, if you take a message-driven system, Microsoft mm-hmm. has MSMQ. Right. IBM has the wildly popular MQ series. Yep. This is around sending one-way messages that are crossing boundaries. Well, if you go talk to the Indigo guys about what are some of the the key tenets of service-oriented architecture, their very first one they mention is. It's about explicitly crossing boundaries, yeah. right? That this application and that application are independent. So we're not going to try and commingle code. We're not going to have an object on this side call an object on that side. I'm going to send a message, and the yeah. only thing that I need to share is what does that message look like? Right. You don't need to. You don't need to expose your complete business objects uh, interfaces. Yeah. You just you want to you want to create an interface that's specific for that one transaction. Exactly, and it's a very sort of facade-based kind of way of doing things. Yeah. Traditionally, those messages have been described in English, right? If you wanted to send an EDI message, which of course has been around since you know forever, essentially in, in information technology, there was a, a description of what an EDI message looked like. I couldn't. It wasn't machine processable, right? I couldn't easily feed that into a machine and get a bunch of code that helps me talk to that EDI object. Right. But it was still a description. So if you look at you know the four tenets that that that, that we talk about around service-oriented architecture, we've seen a lot of those things in the past. Yeah. What we're really doing now is we're building a set of implementations that are agnostic to platform, right? Platform neutral. So mm-hmm. if I do this stuff with web services, then if I'm running some Java stuff over here and I'm running some Windows stuff over there. I can make them talk to each other. Now, the right. truth is, what's really valuable about services is their flexibility. One of the aspects of flexibility is interoperability, but it's not the only one. In fact, for me, if I was going to sit down and build an application suite completely with .NET and just sort of stay, say up front, I will never, ever, ever care about interfacing this with anything else. Of course, you know, you'd be building that in fantasy land, but just for the sake of argument, if I was going to build that, I'd still build it with web services, and I'd still build it in a service-oriented fashion. Mm. Because to me, the important part is the flexibility of change to the system, yeah. not just the ability to integrate it to other platforms. Cool. Uh, Rory's, Rory's got a question for you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Harry, you're talking about the vast changes that are going to be coming along, and, and you've been using that 98% figure, which, of course, is just sort of like a reference just to give us an idea of of the size of the change that you're expecting and is this sort of like uh is this like crystal ball stuff or or do you have a really do you do you feel that you have a really good concrete idea of where things are headed and i'm just curious because i'm guessing that the two percent that sticks around is probably the two percent that's changing things for the other 98 percent that's a really good observation um we're drawing a lot of parallels to the industrial revolution Mm -hmm. so I mentioned Pat earlier. One of the things that Pat is out talking about is the uh, what he calls the metropolis. He, he started calling it an analogy, but he stopped calling it that because it's actually more of a parallel. Hmm. Uh, because what he essentially is saying is that what we're seeing happen now has a direct correlation to what happened 
sort of late 1800s, early 1900s, around the growth of cities. To give an example of this, before the railroads came, cities were completely autonomous. And so stuff that was built in one city didn't really work with stuff from other cities. But it wasn't really that big a deal because it was really hard to get stuff from this city to that city. Before the internet came along, it was really, really hard to get information from this IT shop and this business to that IT shop and that business. Even within one organization, if you had different departments, it was hard to get information around the net, you know, around uh, the enterprise. So the fact that you know this is how I defined a customer and how I defined a customer and you defined a customer, eh, wasn't that big a deal because they never really had to make them work together. Right. So then the internet comes, and this is sort of the corollary to the railroad. The railroad was built primarily to, to deliver people and to deliver raw commodities like wheat and coal. Right. The internet was primarily built to deliver people via browsing and to deliver raw commodities, pictures, HTML, chat, email, that kind of stuff. Right. It wasn't really around delivering this is a structured version of what a customer looks like. Right, right. So what you end up with is now I want to be able to deliver this customer idea across the network to other people. The problem is that we all have to agree on what a customer is. Right. And that's a painful process, but it actually has happened before. Right? People had to agree that this is how you know, these parts of, manu- of real-world manufactured goods were standardized. Yeah. Right? The, the obvious example of this are nuts and bolts. How yeah. do I get, mm-hmm. you know, these nuts have come in very standard sizes, so I can buy a bolt from this company and a nut from that company, and I can know they'll work together. <laughs> Over Jeez. time, we'll see the same thing happen on the uh, – uh, we, we think we'll see the same thing happen on the data side, that you'll get to a point where – this is the standard way that everybody represents a customer. Okay. And the value is, you know, you think, wow, that's not very flexible. But then the value is, imagine how much extra, how much easier it's going to be for me to integrate these systems together when I don't have to do a whole lot of hand coding to translate your version of customer into my version of a customer. Well, right. it's, the, it's an old idea, standardization. And it, it's worked very well for Windows in general. You know, think about how hard it would be to print something if it weren't for the printer driver layer. But uh, anyway, uh, Keith has a comment here. Well, uh, Harry was talking about cities in the Industrial Revolution, and I was thinking about cities that were designed and laid out before that, and one of them came to mind is Boston and how impossible it is to get from one place to another, and that's <laughs> the big dig. Right? And the idea is if you have something that's designed you know, pre this, this, this architectural model, uh, it could be very, very difficult to, uh, to shoehorn that in. And very expensive. You, and, you're, and you're absolutely correct about that. In fact, what we're seeing is that in many cases, the retrofitting, which is what you're talking about for Boston, because as you point out accurately, it was, you know, Boston was designed long before the sort of modern ideas of, of urban uh, design. But it's not like you can just like pave Boston, right, and start over. That, right. that doesn't happen. So you're forced to having to do this shoehorning, and, and you're right. It's not a particularly good fit all the time, and it's an expensive proposition to do. And it's an argument for architecture, for good design, that uh, you know the, the biggest complaint most people have is what they say is, oh, we don't have time or money to do that. We, just, we have to get a product out, and we have to get it out now. But it, it's really short-term thinking, isn't it? I mean, because you're going to – how much did it cost for the big dig to be retrofit in Boston – Versus, you know, if they had, you know, had the vision and the forethought to, to plan it out for the future in the first place. You can certainly make the argument that what you're building now is going to end up in either the 2% or the 98%. <laughs> and whether it happens in, you know, which bucket it ends up in is expressly to figure, you know, based on how much you design the system now. 
So the you know the more you build things along sort of the older way of thinking about building applications, the more likely it is going to be expensive to retrofit down the road. That's interesting. It, it makes me think about the uh, the windshield wipers on a school bus. All right. I, I don't know if you guys remember this, but one of the wipers is moving at one speed and the other is moving at another speed, and they're kind of each doing their own thing, and eventually they have to sync up, right? And I'm kind of thinking about the way that things are being done today, you know, where everybody's doing their own customer this and their own customer that, and uh, eventually, at some point, for this to work, everything's going to have to kind of come together, and we're going to have to stop and, and stop doing things the way we're doing them and just say, okay, we agree, right? Well, I don't think that it's going to – you're because people aren't going to stop doing things right the same way that again people don't stop living in the city as you go through right what's going to probably happen is that these things will shake out over time i i don't think that a large standards body consisting of a large number of people are going to get together and say okay we're going to say this is what a customer looks like <laughs> it's hard enough to get one company to agree that within within our organization this is what a customer <laughs> looks like that's hard right. enough yeah. there's no way you're going to get consensus in the industry What's going to happen is that companies that have a large – these will become de facto standards. Right. And if you take customers as an example, there are two companies I think that are most likely to be able to define what a customer is. One of them is some company like SAP or PeopleSoft. That's one type of possibility because they own a lot of the ERP systems which own a lot of the customer data. The other one's Walmart, right? Because if Walmart comes out and says, thou shalt interop with me using this, hmm. then suddenly – Everybody starts using it that way, and so if I got to do it to make it work with Walmart, then I turn around and do it with all these other you know systems as well. Eventually, what happens is you have a market leader, and then the people who are they're not the leader they 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 change to to you know match what the market leader is. Harry, hmm. Harry is there is there anybody doing thinking of fields of a class or properties of a class or uh, as as features rather than the whole class having a version? Uh, in other words, we have a customer schema, for lack of a better word, and that's fine. Instead of trying to define customer version, you know, GUID for, you know, do you support this customer, which is a sort of all or nothing, sort of define the, have uh, people define the actual fields, what a customer is, you know, do we have a full name, do we have a first name, a last name, a date, a this, a that, and then basically when we have an, uh, when we have a interaction you know, we would query the other side to determine which fields are supported, you know, by number. So rather than, ha you know, and say for this r transaction to occur, you have to support this field or that field. Has anybody been doing that kind of architecture? Um, to some extent, I think that, you know, again, part of the idea is that I need to standardize the method in which I transmit these messages. So I need to have mm -hmm. a standard format for, again, I keep coming back to the customer example. Right. It's very possible that you'll, you know, if you start having some synergy around four or five general formats, that mm -hmm. uh, you know, part of the part of the message passing pr process will be at some point. If I'm going to work with you, I'm going to ask you what formats do you support. Yeah, I think over time, you know, I still think we'll get down to one, but that may be a, a step in that direction. The other thing that makes it very powerful is that, of course, XML, unlike you know objects in the real world. Uh, tend to be very extensible. So where if I say, gee, this is a customer, and these are the standard you know, fields that a customer has, I may you know, jam a bunch of extra stuff in there. And I may send that then across the wire, and you may or may not be able to understand it. Mm -hmm. And so the XML, with its inherent ability to handle extensibility, 
is one of the things that's going to make this, you know, I think, lead towards one and one final format. And what will actually happen is you'll have sort of standard, one standard format, and then I'll have a bunch of additional, you know, stuff that gets put in there, which may correspond to multiple different standards. So you don't, hmm. you don't think that we're moving towards, you know, we have this customer standard, and within that, you're going to have these optional things that are defined further. Well, I think uh, that'll happen. You, you do or you don't? I do. I just think that it's not going to happen as, as again, it's not going to happen as part of a standards body. What will happen is okay. two people, two groups of relative power will start to uh, communicate with a bunch of optional stuff. They won't go into some, you know, standards body and say, is it okay if we start doing this? They'll just start <laughs> doing it because they need to get this stuff done. And then over time, other people will start doing it that way as well. Yeah. So, so a, b- before we go on, can I, I? One thing I think we should probably do is, um, Harry, just for the listeners and for everybody, could you just define SOA? Yeah, SOA and, is an acronym means service oriented architecture, and it's sort of a, a it's it's a big buzzword right now. So as many buzzwords are, it's relatively hard to define. And the the most common definition I've ever heard for buzzword for I mean for for SOA, and Microsoft is has been guilty of this at times as well. Um, it's the stuff you build with our technology, right? <laughs> Insert vendor's name there, right? Uh-huh. You know, BEA will tell you it's what you do with their stuff. We'll tell you it's what you do with Indigo. Uh, IBM will tell you it's what you do with WebSphere. I mean, it, everybody has sort of their, you know, technology version of it. One of the things that's great about working in architecture strategy at Microsoft is I don't sit on a product group. So I, I'm sort of a, somewhat immune from that sort of viewpoint on this. Services are about loosely coupled systems. Because yeah. over time, as I mentioned before, flexibility for change is going to be the dominant success factor. Not performance, not cost. Well, cost, of course, but cost comes from flexibility. The ability to change and adapt quickly is going to be by far the most important success factor in any kind of system. And service-oriented architecture is a way to think about building a system that's flexible. Okay. I, I, I think I, that the uh, the term service-oriented architecture was first coined by Gartner. I'm, I'm not positive on that, but it's important to realize that you know the the customers out there don't necessarily listen to any vendor. A lot of them look to the independents, the Gartner, Forrester, Meta Group, so on, to figure this stuff out and give them that you know five and ten year technology roadmap and bet and so on. And those are the guys that are most uh, strongly pushing. Uh, uh, the SOA uh, design, at least. That's true. Okay, so when when I'm thinking about this, um, we're talking about, let's just bring it back to that 98% again. Um, when I, I see a lot of work that is sort of, okay, drag the grid onto the form, wire it up to a data source, and push the app out. Now, how are these people going to fit into the 98%? Are they really going to be affected by the SOA, or are we going to see like a splintering where there's going to be you know, the sneeches with the stars on their bellies on this side are doing it this way, and then everybody else is doing it this way, the traditional fashion. I mean, I'm not quite sure now that we've talked about it that I see everything fitting conveniently into that 198% or seeing the industry as a whole. I, would, I wouldn't describe the 98% as convenient in any sense. But uh, the, the, the way that I sort of see it is that, the, you know, the, the wired up to a form kind of people, those people are going to continue to do their kind of job. What's going to be important, though, is to provide them, you know, the people who typically do a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, they're pulling data out of a database that's, you know, in, in oftentimes being run by a DBA. Right. And now not always, of course, right? There's a lot of mission-critical data locked up in, you know, Access and Excel out there. So, but if you sort of think of this from the perspective of 
I'm going to provide resources as the IT shop around some of the stuff is going to be infrastructure, like security infrastructure, manageability infrastructure, the sort of the same way the city provides water and electricity and broadband and what have you. And then I'm also going to take some enterprise data and I'm going to expose that again via services. And then mm-hmm. part of you know the, the investment in, in making and in, in visual in the office tools is around helping you know non-IT people build solutions. I mean, if you look at something like InfoPath, InfoPath, while it's especially with SP1 getting some like .NET manageability functionality kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting there is the idea of let's take a form tool and put it in the hands of somebody who's not a developer, a, a power office user. Right. Now, so here's somebody who can you know lay out a form and put some data in it. It's just that that data, instead of coming directly out of the database, is coming from a service. Hmm. So in a way, it's just a lot of this stuff is just going to kind of trickle down and and get integrated behind the scenes, and office workers will eventually hopefully be able to make use of the data, and people who are doing the drag-and-drop wire-up are still just going to be consuming data and still just wiring things up. So for them, it's going to look more or less the same, but the whole world has changed outside. And Dave, and Dave from, from the, the chat room, room says, everyone will, will do what they, they need, need to, to do to get the product, product out. out. If, if they, they can, can use, use the standards, standards without, without affecting the timeline, they will. will. Which, Which is, is a good point, point right? I mean... I mean Microsoft has the resources and the time to to, to, to do, do things right, right but uh, you know the, the scrimping, scraping, scraping small business who absolutely has, has to get their product out is going to have a different take. Well, over, yeah, and, and right now those companies are not investing in standards because there aren't any standards to speak of. At some point, you're going to reach a tipping point where everybody is using this definition of, say, a customer, and it's going to become significantly cheaper to use that version of a customer than it is to continuously hand-tool your own version of a customer. The same way that today it's much cheaper to buy pre-allocated, you know, pre-built shirts of standard sizes right. than it is to go off and have your own shirt handmade. Yeah, that's true. Okay. You're right that for small businesses today, you know, th- that's not going to happen. Because it's a big gamble because there just isn't any there isn't any solid leadership, I guess you could say. And, and that's true. But the thing you've got to think about is it's going to change. It's probably going to change, I would guess, in the next 10 years. So therefore, what should I be putting in my application today? What kind of abstraction layer should I be putting in my application today to say, when this change occurs, I'm going to be able to make this change hmm. with a minimum of pain and suffering? Keith, you wanted to say something about that? Um, yeah, it, it, I think it's it's a, actually a two-stage thing. One isn't just defining these things, but the next one is getting these things into the tools. The guys that are trying to get this done are going to want to go, you know, tools, reference, customer. Right. That's and true. So, you know, we, we look to it to become standardized, and then we look for companies like Microsoft to put it in the tool, and then we'll use it. And and, and, and Keith's point right there is, is spot on. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting to look at. Um, we have another person who's been doing a lot of presentations with us is a guy named Keith Short. Um, and he doesn't actually work for my group the way that Pat does, but we, we bring him in to talk about modeling at, at a lot of our conferences. He and a gentleman named uh, Jack Greenfield, who came over to Microsoft from uh, Rational, actually. Yeah. And so these guys have talked a little bit about what they're planning on uh, doing around modeling, about raising the level of abstraction. And 
I've been working through, they've got a book coming out, and one of the benefits of working in a big house is access to stuff like this before it's shipped. Right. Uh, but it, it's called software factories. And essentially, one of the things they talk about is we build these high-level abstracted concepts like customers and you know, uh, order processing, business processes, and stuff like that. And we're building them with very, very small concrete uh, concepts like strings and integers. And so you know, you've got a very huge gap between what you're trying to build and the tools you have to build them with. And so one of the, you know, the things to think about is can we provide higher-order tools well, let me ask you this, Harry. Um, obviously, you guys are all thinking about Longhorn. Longhorn is all about defining schema and defining standards, if you will, for uh, for different file types in WinFS. Those schemas obviously are not just for people who are writing to text files to persist data. Um, is this sort of where where uh, is is this going to be significant? I think so. I mean, I think WinFS is going to put a stake in the ground around certain. I mean, I think. You're not going to have enough. I mean, those are relatively low-level things that are concerning everybody, right? So, end users, you know, like my my wife at home, right? She doesn't care as much about customers because she doesn't really deal with them as part of her day-to-day life. She cares about yeah. things like her friends and her email, and so most of those concepts that are sort of coming pre-baked and Longhorn, they're going to be very important from this sort of schema perspective. Uh, but I think you're going to need more than that, you know, to do you know more business concepts, and so. I think WinFS is certainly a step in that direction, but I don't think, again, you know, WinFS being as far off as it is and the standardization process that's sort of you know, already happening now, uh, how much will WinFS have an impact into this de facto standardization of, of, of common uh, data types? And there may, be, there may be some people out there who don't know what we're talking about, so um, okay. just give, give us an overview of, that, of what, what they can expect in Longhorn. WinFS, Longhorn has obviously, for those of you who haven't seen, and, and obviously we have spending a lot of time getting out there trying to talk to people about it, uh, there's several pieces of Longhorn that really have a lot to do with service-oriented architecture. Most obviously is this concept of, of Indigo. Indigo is a, a, you know, a, a infrastructure for doing message-driven systems, which, is, which are inherently web service-based. So obviously that's a very big tool for doing service-oriented architecture. If you were going to sit down today and start doing web services, you'd most likely think, gee, today I'm doing it with whatever, you know, Azimax or with the new WYSI stuff that's hopefully going to be here soon. Right. Uh, and then over time, eventually I'm going to get to doing it with Indigo. So I'd probably want to build some kind of abstraction layer there. Another big piece of it is Avalon, which is the user interface tools. Of course, in the end, the rubber has to meet the road. At some point, a user is going to be involved in this. And so how can I easily build applications? And so today we've got... Windows Forms, and we've got you know InfoPath, and over time we'll continue to have those tools. But then Avalon becomes another good, powerful tool. Yeah, and specifically, I guess I'm talking about WinFS I'm and the schema. Yeah, yeah. WinFS is sort of a combination of a file system and a database. And so the the relevant part of what we're talking about here is that Microsoft is defining standard schemas for common types of data, like, for example, user or a person. And so a person has very specific types of information that, that are relevant about it that are stored in the WinFS file system data store. And they're shareable across multiple applications. So if I go in with something like Instant Messenger and I say I'm going to create a user, you know, a, a buddy or what have you, I can now see that user in other applications that use the same data store. So, for example, Outlook, Outlook Express. These applications will all use the same store of people 
that are in WinFS. And you can use those same classes and those same schema in your applications. And right? over time, be able to extend that. So, for example, right. again, the extensibility becomes a critical part. So if I'm going to build a, a CRM system that runs on Longhorn, a person out of the box probably doesn't have enough information for what I need to keep track of. I need to keep track of when was the last time I called this person, how much have they bought from me, that kind of stuff. And yeah. so I'm going to be able to extend that WinFS uh, object, uh, the, the person object, to become a, uh, you know, a customer object or, you know, uh, for a CRM system. And I think you're going to see standards shake out around that as well. Do you think Microsoft might get into the schema business? Like, here's a standard business uh, schema that just like, you know, they standardize Windows and, and everything else. I think we're in the schema business. I mean, I yeah, think yeah. if you look at, you know, our business solutions, right, business solutions are all around schema. Are we in a providing schema for the sake of schema pers- uh, business? Not really. Yeah, well. But we are, yeah. I mean, we ha- we have a CRM system. We actually have two, right? We have the business contact manager, which is more of a you know an Outlook add-on, and then we have a full-blown CRM product, server-based product. I guess I mean schema that reaches farther than Windows, you know, for, for person, for customer, for employee, for, you know, vertical market things maybe. I mean, you know, because what the problem is is that, some somebody will come up with a standard and it'll be good for a while, and then somebody else will come up with another one. And so, you know, there's all these people out out in the companies out there saying, who you know, whose standards do we go with? It's the same you know, same problem that uh, developers have when picking a toolkit, you know, or a, or a application framework. Yeah, well, it's you actually know. harder because I mean, a, a toolkit is typically you know, you pick a toolkit based on what you know and what you're good at. Yeah. You know, and 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 in the end, you know, I can probably build. Uh, you know, I, obviously I'm a huge .NET guy, right? right but right. I, I could build a web app with you know Java and Enterprise Java Beans and all that, and I could probably do a pretty passable job of it. Uh, I think I'd be, you know, I'd be much more productive, and I think I'd build a much better solution in a much shorter period of time using you know, Microsoft tools. Yeah. Of course, there's a slight experience reasoning there too, right? I, that's all I use. But in the end, it's not really going to make a huge financial difference to the cost, to the company which backend tool I use, right? If I'm if I'm if I'm successful in building this application, you know, the the success in you know it's costing me less and I get it out the door faster. There's success there, but from a larger perspective, the the business needed this application, and the, needed this application to automate X, whatever X is. I can be successful either way. Yeah, yeah. And so. I think, you know, Microsoft is really, you know, as one of the lead proponents of XML Web Services, I think you can count on Microsoft to continue to understand well that in to play in the enterprise, it's not about, uh, about you know, what works well on Windows. You know, I made a comment earlier about how if I was going to build a, a company, I would do it all with .NET, and, and even if I didn't care about other platforms, but I specifically labeled that as fantasy land, right? I mean, we know that that's not a, a, a likely story or something that you're going to be able to do. You've got to think about how am I going to integrate this stuff with other technologies. Right. Uh, but not only other technologies, but also other ways of doing business. You know, if I have my definition of a customer and I buy a company and they have their own definition of a customer, even if they're both using .NET, I still have to worry about integration. True. Hmm. And, you know, obviously that's where web services and Indigo come in. That's true. On the in the Microsoft story, um, you know, I think that stuff comes in to me later. And I, I wanted to mention that uh, you know, for a lot of these industries, they haven't worked together in as integrated a way as uh, we might have envisioned. I know, you know, Microsoft internally, you know, they they do create products specific for finance, healthcare, and so on. 
but a lot of these industries they aren't used to to working uh, together. You see a lot of things like let's say automotive, and that would be you know the big three saying if you want to do business with us, you use this proprietary whatever. Yeah, right, and that's not always practical. Right. So what we need actually before a lot of these standardized schema things become uh, common is people to actually uh, agree on uh, business processes, and so. You know, you're, you're going to end up with probably you know different definitions of customers in different vertical areas. But these guys have to first agree on how they want to, uh, you know, exchange things at a higher level before they drill down. If you start right now with um, with primitive things like you know schemas, you will have you know ten different, which we have already, ten or twenty different definitions of what a customer is depending on its context. What do you, you know? Another thing came to mind when talking about these schemas and standards is that uh, if if everybody's using well, not everybody's never going to, but if if the majority of uh, businesses and companies that are using a customer type database or CRM thing all agree on on particular and let's get down to it. I mean, binary formats of of data. Uh, not and, necessarily binary formats, it, message formats. Message I mean, the way you form- store it internally may be radically different. Uh, oh, okay. It shouldn't right, really but, matter. Okay, that's what, uh, binary message formats then. Let's call it that. Yes. Because, okay. Um, or not even binary. But, but yeah, it's a good point. All right, so if we agree on all these message formats, um, do, what does that do to the security story? Does that provide more uh, vulnerability points for security? Because doesn't, you know, just having our own message formats and our own little proprietary system sort of excludes the people we want to exclude by nature of its proprietariness, doesn't it? No, I'm I'm not as deep on security as as other people, but one of the things that I do know about security is that security through obscurity, which is what you're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Is typically not a very secure thing. I mean, when you go through and you read the, the various abilities to exploit systems, a lot of these systems are being exploited not based on, you know, what the what you know is is being in, the information is being inferred by the hacker yeah right so while certainly there's there's it slows them down though you can't argue that right it slows them down but is that what you're is that what you care about do you care about slowing them down or do you I, care I, about I agree. Them? I actually agree with you i i just wanted to uh to throw that issue out there i think you know security through obscu- you know there's there's a thing a couple of things about security that are really critically important first off is it's really hard to do right, and I think that as a Microsoft employee, I'm really qualified to say that we know how hard it is <laughs> yeah. to do it right. You got some pain there. Yeah, and 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 we're we're investing very heavily in fixing that, and and we're not there yet. You know, uh, we we I keep pointing out to customers, you know, we stopped the bus on on Windows, uh, Windows Server 2003 for you know th- three months and sent all of our developers to security training, and we swept the code. And yet, it still wasn't enough, right? It was still Windows Server was was vulnerable to MS Blaster and and, and so big and a couple right. of others last year. So, which means that it tells us, you know, we're a lot farther along than we were two years ago, like when Code Red or NIMDA hit. Uh, but we're not right. we're not done. We're not anywhere near done. So right. we still right. have a long way to go. Okay. So security is something that's very very important to try and get right. And one of the key things you you read about with security are Security through obscurity doesn't work, and don't roll your own security. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And leverage the you know don't build your own security protocols. You know use security protocols that are well known, and that's part of the reason they're you know you know tools like Wizzy and later Indigo. You know I can do security without having to write any code. It's a declarative statement, and that's important because that's much easier to get right. 
Well, what's what, what's the big argument other than easier to get right? I mean, why is it more secure to not do your own? Well, because it turns out that most security algorithms have vulnerabilities, and the security vulner the security algorithms that are out there today, those still are out there today because lots and lots and lots of people have looked at them and have not been able to break them. So these are well, you know, these have been well tested algorithms. If you go off and build your own algorithm, you don't have that you know, industry level of, you know, scrutiny, ensuring that it actually works correctly. So, you know, things like... In other words, you cut off your support lines and your your structure, your 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 help, help support structure. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a reason why the security protocols that are out there now are the ones that are being used, because they're the ones that work. Okay. Rory, you had a question? Yeah, this reminds me of a conversation that I had earlier in the week with someone at work, and he was talking about ADO. And he was working with one of these guys who thinks that everybody else in the universe does everything wrong and likes to roll everything himself. And one of the first things he did when working on this particular contract was write his own replacement, his own com-based data access <laughs> you know, library to replace ADO. And, I mean, the first thought is, do you really think you are going to do a better job than this team of people where this is their core competency this is what they do day in day out there's a team that just works on this one particular thing mm. do you really think that with your own you know homegrown rolled solution that you're going to come in and have less problems and less bugs and well, less issues the one than, thing than you ADO. might say about that though is that the, the, the sql server team at microsoft as great as they are the ado team in this case i guess as great as they are they don't know anything about the context that your company is working in and so while they you know they have to go off and build a general tool for general use you can theoretically make the argument that, well, I'm doing something, you know, foo that requires bar, and, you know, this is something that nobody ever really considered. Now, the truth of the matter is I have a hard time imagining that, you know, there's a scenario wherein that's a really good idea because of all the, the pain that comes along with it, as you point out. Uh, but, I mean, that is, a, that is a valid point of, you know, there's a specific context in which you guys are building an application that we don't know about when we build the tool. In fact, uh, let me throw something in here. Uh, the patterns and practices guys have put out the uh, data access application block, and a lot of people have uh, seen that. They may not even realize that that was from the patterns and practices team. Most apps have some sort of a data layer inside of it, so they, uh, you know, they publish this 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 generally configurable thing. It's uh, specific to uh, SQL Server, doesn't go against Oracle DB2, and so on. And it's not necessarily right to automatically say, you know, tools, references, just use this thing without thinking about it. There might be need to uh, refactor it to add specific support. Perhaps you're going to add some caching performance stuff in there, uh, other data, and so on. And, uh, in fact, that's why uh, I created this thing, which I guess we'll talk about in my half of the show, which is the guidance about patterns and practices. So it's yeah. the guidance on top of the guidance that shows people how to apply that in their scenarios. Well, the, uh, the hour's about up, and we want to take a break and hear a word from our sponsors and uh, listen to some music. So, guys, just sit tight, and we'll be, uh, we'll be right back. Hey, Carl Franklin here, giving a shout-out to my friends at Data Dynamics. Uh, we've talked a lot about active reports on this show, and this is no exception. So I'm talking about activereports.net. This is a port of their popular active reports program. If you're currently thinking of doing reporting in .NET for Windows Forms or web applications, check out active reports for .NET. 
Uh, many of my friends in the business use and swear by ActorReports.net. I use it as well. Let me just tell you, to say that the reporting is simple does it an injustice because it makes you think that it can only do simple things. It can do very powerful things, but you don't have to go through hoops just to set up a simple report. When you create a report, the report exists with your application, okay? It doesn't exist on a server somewhere. All right, we're not talking about enterprise reporting. We're talking about, I have some data, I want to print it out, or I want to show it to the user. PDF format is supported. HTML format is supported. All the great features you'd expect from a reporting engine, drop-dead simple, and the best part, it's not going to break the bank. They have a great licensing scheme that's easy to deal with. So check it out at www.datadynamics.com. Now let's get back to our show.
disgusting Well let it rain, let it pour, let it rain a whole lot more Cause I got them deep river blues Just let the rain drive right on, let the waves just sweep along Yes, I got them deep river blues Now my old gal, she's a good old pal She looks just like a waterfowl when I get them I'll go out on a spree when I get the new Just give me back my old boat. I'm gonna sail her if she'll float. Cause I got them deep river blues. Yeah, I'm going back to muscle shows. Times are better there, I'm told. Cause I got them deep For sticking around, thanks for hanging out. That was a little music, uh, Rory and myself, respectively. And uh, now we'd like to do a segment in the show. We usually do a little segment we like to call the Linux vulnerability of the week. Hello, Mister Bull. Let's you and me fight. <laughs> And for those of you who don't know what the Linux vulnerability of the week is, uh, you know, not that we have anything against Linux. We know Windows has bugs. We know every every operating system has vulnerabilities. But there are those zealots out there who claim that Windows crashes and Linux does not. And uh, we would like to set the record straight and give a little bit equal time to the vulnerabilities that show up uh, in the Linux camp uh, every week. And every week there seems to be something that's pretty serious. Um, this one comes from, this one was from April 14th, just a couple of days ago, in the kernel, multiple vulnerabilities, Debian Security Advisory DSA 479-2. First one, a vulnerability has been discovered in the R128 drive in the Linux kernel, which could potentially lead an attacker to gain unauthorized privileges. Alan Cox and Thomas Beige developed a correction for this. Pretty serious. Uh, next one, and this is all within one vulnerability. Next one is 
Arhan Van de Ven, and I'm sorry if I butchered your name, Arhan, discovered a stack-based buffer overflow in the NCP lookup function for NCPFS in the Linux kernel, which could lead an attacker to gain unauthorized privileges. Peter Vandrevek developed a correction for this. And then Zenparse, I love that name, Zenparse, discovered a buffer overflow vulnerability in the ISO 9660 file system component of Linux kernel, which could be abused by an attacker to gain unauthorized root access. Sebastian Kramer and Ernie Petreads, sorry Ernie if I misspelled your name there, misspoke your name, uh, developed a correction for this. And it goes on with a couple other ones that aren't so quite as exciting. But there you go. There you have it. The Linux vulnerability of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Mr. Bull. Let's you and me fight. <laughs> now, now, Carl, uh, I don't know much about Linux, but um, do they have a system like Windows Update where, you know, just automatically the fixes for this are there when you're you know, log in the next day. I don't know because I'm not a Linux guy. Um, I do know that they do have a process for getting updates, but I don't know as if, if it's as easy as Windows Different Update. distros have different methods, and some do have automated updates, and some it's manual, and some have a nice GUI interface, and some it's just text-based. It depends on what distro you're using. So, Keith, you're taking the developer's perspective on architecture. Uh, I know that you're a developer-turned-architect, or architect-wonk, as it were. Uh, so what are the kinds of things that uh, you've been thinking about lately? Well, um, the uh, the issue right here with ADO versus ADO.net kind of brings uh, brings this up. Um, there are a lot of people that understand technically how to get a uh, Visual Studio app, VB app in this case, to run inside uh, Visual Studio.net, right? There's an upgrade guide. There's, uh, you know, the wizard that does all of the heavy lifting, but that doesn't mean that your app is now a web service SOA app. And the most obvious example of that is if you've got any sort of, you know, data access to ADO, when they upgrade it, they merely interop back to, uh, to ADO, right? So you, you don't necessarily gain all of that new stuff, all of the new whatever it is that makes it a dot connected thing because you're running inside of Visual Studio.net. Yeah. So, and um, and a lot of that, you know, just has to go back to, you know, how do you refactor your application to uh, to be able to take advantage of these features? And it's one of the ironic things uh, going forth in Whidbey, you know, the VB guys get uh, Edit and Continue, for example, but refactoring is a, um, a feature that's exposed to the C-sharp developer when it's actually the VB guys with, you know, mountains and mountains of legacy code that need to do the refactoring. Well, uh, VBNet would be get some refactoring stuff, um, I know, right? Uh, for example, we get this sort of search and replace that only replaces class names and code, not comments, right. you know, but just code. Um, wh what are some of the things that C-sharp programmers get in C-sharp 2.0 that we need in VisualBasic.net? Well, we need the ability to basically tear classes apart. The most... Uh the most obvious one is that there is so much code behind. I mean, that was the neat thing about VB from the beginning is you, you threw some controls on a form, you double-clicked it, and you started entering code, and you just didn't have to worry about how it was wired up. Now we have these relatively monolithic things with all of the processing, all of the interaction between the c controls essentially welded 
to to those controls. And if you look at where a lot of the uh, application architecture uh, stuff is going, you're trying to pull as much of that out and put that in a separate layer. The uh, we talked a little bit about the smart client stuff in uh, in the first half of the show, but one of the things that you'll see in the kind of the architectural model that's used by uh, a number of different efforts inside of Microsoft, particularly the patterns and practices guys, is that they they are separating out the the UI to actually have the UI elements in terms of how they're displayed and you know data validation and so on, and then behind that the UI process. And this, uh, this right. allows you to use the uh, the model view controller MVC paradigm that's used behind uh, ASP.NET, for example. And um, this particular reference architecture, I guess you would call it an application block uh, from the PAG group, the user interface process. We were we were talking with Michael Stewart about this um, application block like a year ago before it came out. And um, I guess it's been widely used, or or maybe it hasn't. But uh, I guess the idea there is to separate the UI elements from the UI logic, if you will, right? And now there's there's a couple of reasons to do that. And let me just mention that uh, so PAG is the internal uh, code name or whatever reference name for the group, and that's uh, plat- currently now stands for Platform Architecture Guidance. And they produce three main types of uh, stuff of guidance. Uh, the obvious one is the application blocks. Uh, the first yeah. one was data and then the exception management and now there's I think about nine of them. Those are source code. They are not distributed as binaries. Um, they have some documentation in terms of it like a chum file. But there's not a lot of good um, guidance about how to use it. So, in fact, one of the things that I've done is create this group called um, Guidance About Patterns and Practices. And the first thing that we are really working on is a book about the app blocks. Uh, this will be coming out from MS Press probably in the July-August time frame. We're going to have the first chapter on the DAB available at TechEd. Now, is this a Microsoft group or is this a guided design group? Well, um, it, it's kind of neither. It's it's people outside of Microsoft who are who are you know industry experts in specific areas. In fact, what's ironic is while we were doing the first half, I got uh, I got an email from uh, a guy over in MSDN saying who are the members of the Gap, and uh, so I'm going to grab that little list right there. And uh, okay, myself just doing some general architecture stuff, but Billy Hollis on Smart Client, everybody knows. Billy, mm-hmm. BB World, uh, Bill Evian, uh, Web Services. He wrote mm-hmm. a book on, uh, in fact, on WYSI, Web Services Enhancement. Uh, Rocky Lotka for Business Objects. I mean, that's that's where Rocky's made, uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, uh, of his reputation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ted Neward on platform uh, interoperability. You guys yep. are mentioning uh, Ted. He's the guy. He is the guy. Uh, a fellow named Fernando Guerrero on uh, data access. He's got uh, a company called uh, SQL or Solid Quality Learning. And if you're over in the uh, the SQL world and particularly looking to Yukon and stuff, you'll see and know some of the people, uh, Kalen Delaney and uh, so on, that are part of this. Yeah, we uh, we we have given Fernando a couple of shout outs on the shows and. Uh... Yeah, uh, we, in fact, tried to hook up with him a couple of times uh, for .NET Rocks. We just haven't gotten around to it yet. Oh, I'm sure we can have some. I'll make that happen. Um, Chris Kinsman, 
um, who I think you know pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of our, our general all-around guy, performance and so on. Yeah. Uh, there's another fellow in the UK uh, named Rafael uh, Lukowicki, who is not familiar to many people in the U.S., but uh, is a tremendous uh, speaker. In fact, at TechEd uh, Barcelona last year, he had four of the top five scores. Wow. And on topics like MSF. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's tough. And uh, another fellow um, in the design pattern space is a fellow named uh, Bob Martin, or Uncle Bob Martin, uh, from Object Mentor. He uh, was a business partner with uh, Jim Newkirk, who's one of the new um, kind of star additions over in the patterns and practices area. They, uh, Harry uh, definitely mentioned uh, Pat and some of the people that's uh, over in his group. Patterns and practices guys have picked up uh, Ward Cunningham. I, oh, I yeah. Think yeah. His name's known to a lot of people. The guy invented the yeah. wiki. Um, uh, Wojtek, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. <laughs> From Rational, he was actually uh, Grady Booch's uh, boss there, and he's working to to make sure that the you know the, the in-tool experience for all of this stuff uh, works out pretty well. So some serious thinkers there and innovators. It's happened everywhere. Yeah. One of the guys I wanted to mention, um, it's sort of interesting because I uh, have confirmed him to do a keynote for uh, the Patterns and Practices Summit. <laughs> a fellow named uh, Blake Stone. He's over in that that group, uh, Harry mentioned a guy named Keith Short. These are the guys who are working on, you know, the next generation of tools in the Whidbey time frame, the one's codenamed Whitehorse. And Blake uh, came to Microsoft from Borland, where he was basically in charge of things like the JBuilder product. In fact, he was uh, CTO there. So we've seen Microsoft kind of hoover up uh, a number of luminaries from different areas. I mean, you know, starting with Don Box, for example, right. uh, who's working on Indigo. And they've they've gone out and gotten a lot of these a lot of these you know bright sparks and and they're all uh, they're all working on their single kind of vision of these tools and platform things going forward. But um, I wanted to come back and mention my perspective and Carl and I have known each other for I don't know ten plus years. Yeah, at least. Yeah, I, I kind of come from the VB perspective. Now I, I like the VB tool language and all of that. Microsoft internally had the uh, the idea of these personas, and I don't know how well the listeners are familiar with them. A little bit. We've talked about them a little bit. We've talked about more. Now, these were personas that they associated with specific uh, languages, yeah. but uh, ignoring the language issue for a minute, uh, and when this was kind of touched on in the first half, there are guys who are, quote, opportunistic. they got to get a job done, right? Okay, yeah. and they are going to take whatever whatever they need. A little biz talk, a little ASP.NET starter kit, you know, whatever it takes right. to get it done. And then there's the guys like uh, I think Rory mentioned that want to go out and build a whole new class hierarchy around data access. Now that's great, and and you can go off and polish your little your your little object model for the next two years. <laughs> but um, that isn't really about getting something done that they that the business and the guys inside the business who are ultimately paying you know, paying to, to have you do this stuff, you know, are willing to, typically willing to support. Yeah. Now, I remember talking to you early on in the early days of .NET, and uh, you were talking about how, you know, since most of the programmers at Microsoft are C++ programmers or were C++ programmers in the past, you know, 99% of them, 
that uh, naturally when .NET comes out, .NET 1.0, uh, most of the samples in the help file are going to be in C-sharp because C-sharp is used more widely internally. And, uh, you know, in fact, I know that you were kind of instrumental in helping them uh, to, you know, convincing them that they need to pay more attention to VB.NET as a language. Uh, doesn't mean that they didn't want to support VB.NET. It just means that they were naturally uh, inclined to be C-sharp programmers. Um, but, and that has turned around to a large extent. I mean, you can see the VB team is getting a lot more resources. They're doing a roadshow this summer, a tour, I guess it's called the VBNet tour, and they're putting a lot of effort into VBNet Whidbey, as you can, as you can tell in the hype. Uh, I mean, it's just an incredible language. But, um, you know, what do you think about, what do you think about that uh, in terms of uh, how it's, how it's going now? Right. Um, well, Microsoft doesn't write business apps. I mean, there are people inside the organization who do, but we don't, we don't see those, right? We see, the tools and, and things that they produce, like Visual Studio, Windows, and so on. Yeah. And the guys who write those things uh, have always written in uh, you know, C and C++ and naturally gravitated to C Sharp. And because of their exposure through the PDC, blogging, all of this stuff, got a, got a huge, huge leap out there on, on, on C Sharp and basically building framework right. stuff. But let's go back a number of years. You know, go back before VB. You had to be a C, C++ guy, and it was tough to right. write an app. VB came along, and the guy who understood the business process with, uh, you know, a day a week or whatever of training could all of a sudden build solutions. Yeah. And we're talking uh, a productivity increase of an order of magnitude. Huge. Right. It was huge. And then they built on top of all of those things that, these other guys had written. You could never write, you know, user kernel and GDI DLLs in VB, but the other people had written the platform stuff, and then these people came along and wrote the solutions on top of that. The same thing is happening right now. For the last few years, we've been building infrastructure, and whether we being, you know, Microsoft and the .NET framework and stuff they're putting into Windows, uh, the, the other vendors, and to a certain extent, the patterns and practices guys putting out these blocks, they're building a common base. Now, somebody is going to come along, use all of that stuff, and get that 10x order of magnitude improvement in building solutions that give you know, businesses or organizations that, that advantage that they need over their, their competitors and the others in the industry. Yeah, and that's a good point. And uh, before we uh, get back to the conversation, we have a caller who uh, we've read his emails on the show before, but we've never actually talked to him. It's uh, Jeff Palermo from over in Iraq. Jeff, are you calling from Iraq? Well, actually, we're close to being home, so I'm in Kuwait right now. we got a couple more days, so I'm back in Texas. Well, it's damn good to finally talk to you, and uh, how you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Good, uh, good talk to you, too, Carl and Rory. Uh had fun listening to all the shows. I've actually downloaded every single show and listened to it, so I'm up to date. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, uh, do you have a question for Harry and or Keith? Yeah. The earlier uh, discussion about service-oriented architecture sort of piqued my interest, and I was thinking about the web services that eBay and Amazon have uh, where you can publicly tie in to some of their back-end APIs. 
And I'm wondering, is that a good example of service-oriented architecture, or is that just web hmm. services? And in designing a new application in .NET 1.1, what special things should I be doing now? Is offering web services hooks into key places in the middle tier enough? Uh, what should I be doing now, you know, without WinFS or Longhorn? That's a, that's a great question. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, we were going to talk about stuff like that. You could think of web services merely as a new transport mechanism. In fact, it's kind of a long way around. Uh, I was talking to a client in the Midwest, and uh, they are all legacy VB-based uh, financial service thing. And they wanted to know about moving uh, to .NET. Now, they've trained some of their developers. It's not a technical issue. They need to know how to get their huge code base of stuff and what do they do to to, to do the .NET stuff. So if you heard of web services, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not ready yet. right? I mean, that's all you read about in the PC leak and so on is that, you know, we're, we're at version X point Y or whatever of this thing, and it's all sort of coming together. And I, so I, you know, so they knew web services weren't for them. I asked them, "What do you want to do?" And they said, "Well, we want to exchange data with all of our our member financial institutions." They then they know they want to use XML, and, and they want to do it over the internet. Yeah. But they didn't need web services. <laughs> so, you know, the point is, if you have today an app and you're using COM and DCOM, and you want to, you know, do that in .NET in a more disconnected uh, what state where you're passing data instead of object references, where you're actually in a in a multi-security uh, environment, then web services are just a, simply a, a transport mechanism that you can use to replace uh, your common DCOM code. You could use remoting as well, but certainly web services is going to have a lot more uh, standards, you know, paid to it down the road, uh, attention paid to it, so you can do all of those you know, extra things across these uh, across these networks. So merely using web services does not get you to ultimately to a, to a, a design uh, arc, uh, architecture where you are doing true SOA. What about biztalk.org? Uh, isn't that a website that has a, a lot of different agreed-upon standard schemas for uh, in classes for different vertical industries? Yeah, uh, biztalk has a whole wealth of uh, people that have published these connectors and different things for hooking up different systems. And yes, there there's a whole you know body of knowledge about how to go against uh, SAP and Siebel and so on and some standardized schemas there. One of the things that Harry um, talked about was uh, Pat's Metropolis uh, presentation. And one of the things that Pat talks about is how to um, how to rationalize data that's slightly different. So we're going to be looking at ultimately having kind of like babblefish for data translation. Yeah. You know, where that, that says hey, there's and some of it is lossy and some of it isn't. And mm -hmm. then you've got you know in the 90 x percent case we can say you know this field is that field. But yeah. now we have to parse them and combine them and do manually that. process them. Right. Well, I just wanted to say that the, the eBay and Amazon are very sort of early examples. And I'd like to point out there's also a Microsoft uh, web service API as well. But again, it's, it's sort of very early on. Of course, the Microsoft one isn't part of a business process the way that Amazon and eBay are. So from the perspective of building systems that cross boundaries, certainly eBay and Amazon are representing good examples of what a 
a, a service-oriented architecture is going to look like in a few years. It's obviously a very sort of beginning scratching the surface thing. The other thing is to look at you know the way that you think about users and customers and orders and those types of things, which would typically be constant across you know selling stuff via Amazon and selling stuff via eBay, you know different business process but same types of data. Yet Amazon and eBay don't have don't share the services, right? They don't look the same. If I want to write an application that talks to eBay and then I want to write an application that talks to Amazon, they're radically different interfaces, and so I have to hand code and hand tool those uh, those service interfaces. So I think going forward, you're going to start to see some of the standardization shake out. That's going to be one of the key things, so that I can say I'm going to plug into somebody to sell this stuff for me. Could be Amazon, could be eBay, and I can switch that back and forth with a little additional cost, uh, unlike today where it's a very, very expensive proposition. Um, also, we don't actually know if they're using a service-oriented architecture internally or not. I mean, yeah, no, I was just going to talk about it from an external perspective. Yeah, from an external perspective, yes, they're offering a service interface. People are going to wrap whatever they have internally. Retrofit. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like we knew these guys as web apps, right? And, and, and they were surfacing a lot of information via HTML, and now they're just exposing it via an XML web service. Uh, for programmatic access, very, uh, very, you know, reasonable way to implement uh, uh, service. I actually, I was actually just interested to hear about the eBay and Amazon questions, just because that was kind of on my mind too. It's like, where is something just a remote API, and where does something actually fit into SOA? I think that's going to be a question on a lot of people's minds as they're trying to wrap their heads around this stuff. Well, some of the natures of how you communicate with a service are different than things that we've used in the past with what would generically be called RPC or remote process communication. Sure. In, their, in that case, you know, you have an object reference, you are calling a method, and you have a higher level of trust. You know, before I let you call me, you know, I'm going to, I should want to know who you are and you know, what, you know, permissions you have and all that good stuff. In the classic days, uh, this stuff all ran in one process. A DLL called another process. You know, you're all good to go until there's something that does something either dangerous or accidental or malicious or whatever. And now you've, you know, you've opened the kimono in terms of your, you know, memory pointers, object pointers, and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What these services represent is uh, a move to a, a different security model where they put a moat around it. In fact, one of Pat's... Uh, uh, older presentation uh, presentations talked about uh, emissaries and fiefdoms, and there's certainly the idea that you know within your high trust area you do things you know via RPC if that makes sense. But then you put that wall around it, and you're going to say everything coming in and out of here, I'm going to control the heck out of. In fact, if you look at uh, um, Robert Roger Sessions' Software Fortresses book, which mm-hmm. is very derivative, actually, of the work that Pat does. If you read the the acknowledgments, he specifically addresses uh, Pat's work. He talks about this like a fortress and a drawbridge. That's the analogy that he uses. So, you know, inside the fortress, you can do whatever you want. It's it's a it's a high trust environment. But to get in and out, that requires you know you got to know you know you got to trust. You got to spend a lot of time trusting, figuring out how to trust the messages that come across the drawbridge. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the data in those messages, too. Exactly. And, and the caller and all those pieces. In any of these applications that you've done for customers, Harry, and uh, Keith, in any applications that you have done in service-oriented architectures, have you taken it to the point where you want to do authentication on every single call? 
rather than get authenticated once and then get a token back and then uh, pass the token. Um, is that the kind of thing that you're doing, uh, being authenticated with every call and passing that credential information? Well, there's, yeah, you have to do. I, I think you're you're combining two different things there. One is the you know security authorization. Do you have the right to do this? And then right. the second one is validating the data. You just you simply have to do that. Yeah. So, so when you develop these applications, that uh, it brings up another question. When you, when you're developing web services, let's say, uh, you're obviously going to have to have a lot of parameters, or at least a couple extra parameters, to handle the um, the the credential information. Is this something you would do to wrap these in a class or a structure um, and and pass the class instead of a whole slew of different parameters? And that brings up another question. Is that a good idea, you know, creating classes? And what does that do? What is, does that make me proprietary if I make a class and pass an object? Like, could I pass that to a Java web service? And could the Java programmer make a class with that same name and same namespace, if you will, and... And would it be deserializable on the other side? Is that something that's done? Well, that's where we're we're actually having to look at third-party products, uh, JN Bridge, uh, Mind Electric Glue, and so on. And you know, Microsoft does not provide technically a a Java toolkit, and uh, you know, Sun and IBM, you know, the other way. <laughs> well, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? That <laughs> They're, you know, they're kind of all about playing nice and, and being, uh, you know, being interoperable with all these other platforms, and they didn't go that extra mile to, to make it possible to uh, pass types across different platforms. Or maybe it's just impossible. I don't know. Well, I, I think to, to, to add that, address that, though, is that it's, you're not talking about objects anymore. Right? You're talking about messages in XML formats, and... We do, in fact, share that stuff, right? I can very easily send a message from a Windows side to a, a IBM WebSphere side or whatever other Java implementation and be able to understand that. The way that XML ma messages map into the local type system, right, be it Java or be it .NET, of course, those are relatively similar, so it's relatively similar problems. That's a really difficult problem because there's a lot of Java, there's a lot of type system stuff that doesn't have an equivalent in XML and vice versa. There's a lot of XML stuff that doesn't have an equivalent in, in, in the uh, in the uh, in the typing system, I've right. given up on XML serialization. It, well, it's not a it's not a .NET or a Java problem. It's just the typing systems are so different. It's really really hard to do that correctly automatically. Also, we we've heard we had a lot of guidance from Microsoft that said use things like data sets instead of business objects that you compose of more primitive types and so on. Really? Mm -hmm. Now I've heard that that completely locks you into .NET. Yeah, I wouldn't say using data data sets either. Well, we, we've, I'm just saying we have seen, you know, a lot of things about people just passing data sets around. And it's true. That what I wanted to mention is there is no analog to the data set over in that Java space. So now we are in that, you know, translation mode of having to, you know, change it into other things. Well, and, and Steve, Keith made a point earlier about the tools, right? And, and tools tend to lag the platform. And, and, and so his point earlier, which is equally important now, is there are better tools that need to be made to do this stuff, right? And we're not there on the tools yet. Yeah, just getting our feet wet. Now, that's at the lower level. What I come back to and say I need is the tools that help me uh, visualize all this stuff. I mean, even as a VB developer, you know, I, I kind of used to drool at the tools for, like, class hierarchy browsers that were available in Smalltalk and, and other programming things. I mean, basically, VB 
you know, we had our, our beautiful forums designer, and then we had our project, you know, in class kind of browsers off there on the side, but it's really hard to envision how an application is, is constructed. You know, you're, you're left with, you know, trying to draw Visio diagrams or something like that, and it's very hard to explain this stuff, in a, particularly in a multi-programmer environment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, separate from that, and this is where, again, some of the tools effort stuff is going, is deploying this stuff. And there's a huge gap between the I, you know, the dev side of the house and what Microsoft likes to call the IT pro or the IT. Which is weird since all developers are also IT pros, if you think mm-hmm. about it. Well, they have to be to administer their machine. Well, no, I'm just saying the developers are a professional in the IT industry, right? Uh, <laughs> Go on, I'm sorry. That's, that's, <laughs> that's fair, but um, they're, in, they're different, right? They're not the operations side of it. Right. Yeah. I think that's a much better term. That's my point. Oh, okay. Then how about infrastructure? Uh, infrastructure or IT pro? I mean, uh, infrastructure or operations professional instead of IT pro. Go on. I'm sorry. I'm babbling. No, uh, <laughs> that's, that's fair. And it's called, Just call them nerds, all right? And that, that takes care of everybody. Right. They all think they're, they're all <laughs> But we have to nerds. subclass nerds. No, go on. <laughs> that's the point, right? The idea is here, you know, it, it works on your machine, and maybe you have a second machine, and you put up, you know, some some component over there, and you call it, and certainly you test, you know, a web browser interface, a web service interface that way, and then you turn around and give it to, a, you know, a, typically a testing group, and then there's, it's deployed into this infrastructure, and it's been incredibly difficult to find out what what bits and pieces and how things are exposed and controlled and so on in that infrastructure. But it yeah. works on my machine. That's, that's right. Well, we have a question from Sal DiStefano uh, who says, I thought we were supposed to use XML messages, not objects in SOA. And I think he was talking about, you know, me passing a class, passing an object. Well, and that's my point about the XML serial. I give, I've given up on right. XML serialization. I want to do – I hand to – any XML work that I do, I tend to do manually. Right. That can be painful sometimes, but at least you don't run into the typing. The, yeah, you don't run into the typing problems. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is maybe <clears throat> maybe you could use a data set as Keith was suggesting and then just take the XML out of it and m- massage it and munge it so that it's uh, you know, that it's in a standard format or something. But man, that seems awfully a far cry from, you know, uncomment hello world and, you know, poof, I got a web service. No, we used to do the calculator web service. That was the one that I always did, <laughs> yeah. which is equally stupid. Yeah, right. Which is integers and strings. Yeah, but the point. Yeah, but the point is, is that you know, web service is supposedly really easy, and like everything, you know, it's easy to get a hello world. But you know, when you're passing messages, you're ba- what you're basically saying is, stay away from classes, stay away from data sets. You have to write your own XML. Well, well, well you need to use those things is. internally. To your service, right? If you have a tool that writes them, that's what you want. And and, and obviously, over time, we're going to get better tools to handle some of it. Right. And I think you said that too. Yeah. So we're not. You know, objects are great. I'm a huge object guy, but you're not going to pass objects across the wire. Yeah. Well, you're not going to pass them across security boundaries. Right. Well, yeah. Within an application, you might have a multi-tier app that you're doing some of this kind of high, high, uh, high coupled, you know, RPC-ish kind of stuff. But for the most part. You know, part of what I think is that you need to start thinking about, you know, decoupling down into, you know, one of the comments I made on my blog recently, which is down, which is nice and convenient that, you know, that DevHawk is down right now, um, is that, you know, instead of one big app like SAP, maybe you run 500 independent 
services. And then that comes back to Keith's point about operations, because you can't conveniently run 500 independent services today. Let me give you a a fun thing. I was talking with the IT pro side of the house at Microsoft. They they publish in the patterns and practices space. They, They are a lot of that is in the practices area, which is the operational practice. In fact, I better come back and clarify. There's three main things that the patterns and practices guys do. The first one is the blocks, which everybody gets excited. Show me the code. Uh, the second one is uh, their guides, the operational guides. And most people are familiar with the security guides um, about uh, building secure ASP.NET web apps, and then the newer one, threats and countermeasures. You know, a caching guide and so on. That's the also- team development one is also really good that you guys have. And they have uh, stuff on design patterns and so on. And then the third bit, which is coming out, is is basically reference applications and architectures, things like and and here you know we, it's in a state of flux, but there's a Shadowfax application that was designed to you know kind of supersede all of the Fitch and Wather, Duwamish, Pet Shop, you know things that we've right. thought of in the past. And uh, so that's all coming out. But inside the IT Pro E space, there's something called MSA, Microsoft Systems Architecture, and it was an amazing thing to sit down with one of these guys and say, let's work out the absolute minimum system requirements that we could give to a developer that they might be able to test something and play with it in close to a real-world scenario, Okay, which would be great. I said, hey, we have virtual PC, virtual server. Let's set this up with three or four machines. And we can use ISA server to, uh, you know, lock down, you know, ports and communication stuff. And we could really simulate this on one guy's desktop. Wouldn't that be damn cool? And now I don't have to, you know, ask for seven machines or something like that. Yeah. So they they thought about this for a while and they came back and, and they said, okay, here's our solution. And their solution had, they were using virtual server and they had seven boxes. That's seven physical boxes, and they, you know, they had their primary and backup DNS, of course, because you got to have that, and your Active Directory, and your DHCP, your firewall, your uh, uh, remote remote uh, communication server for VPNing, all of this stuff. I said, wow. Yeah. Okay, well, where's my <laughs> app going? And they go, oh, you need another machine for that. This is just the infrastructure before you get to the application machine. It's a th- something that Rory and I have been talking about a lot, which is over architecture. Uh, you know, over architecting something that should be simple. I mean, architecture is really important, and we're not saying it isn't. But <clears throat> sometimes we we find uh, programmers get really overzealous with a with a tool or with a with a procedure for something that can really be done much much more simply. Right, Rory? Yes. Ward from from Keith's group has a, a nice way of saying, what is the simplest thing that we can do that would possibly work? Yeah, yeah. There was, um, at one time I was signed up to write a book, um, and uh, I can't remember exactly what it was about, but it was derived from another book, uh, Programming Pearls. I think it was VB Pearls or something like that. I think it was Bentley. And it's been a while since I've been into those books, but there was one of them that said about optimization, you know, that the idea here is, you know, you're done optimizing when there's nothing that you could nothing left for you to remove a really uh, a really good example of that that a lot of people have uh, experienced pain wise is uh, you know database table over normalization if you want to call it that I mean somebody got this idea to completely you know levels different levels of normalization and we should be you know completely normalized or level one level two level three level four whatever it is 
and you know at the at the ultimate level you try to do a simple query and there's 90 joins and you know it takes forever and uh the problem is that you can't do this stuff in your head i mean i i can understand how business solutions work and i've done some data stuff over the years i can't do multi-table joins just you know in my head and that's where the business object stuff comes in we have somebody else that can basically put that stuff together in the data layer and give me an abstraction of the data that I can deal with in terms of what you were asking about. I want a customer, uh, an inventory item, right. an order record, something yeah. like that. Yeah. If you got to go to five different systems and 20 different tables to put that together, that's cool. I don't want to know about it. Yeah, yeah. Keith, uh, let's talk a little bit about the totally shift gears here, about the Speakers Bureau, about the INETA Speakers Bureau. Was this something that was your idea, or was this uh, I, the reason, I mean, the sole, sort of the whole reason INETA exists is support user groups, but... Uh, the Speakers Bureau thing came a little bit after, I thought. Um, it would be hard to, to actually pick the you know the original idea, but it was probably at uh, the PDC before the last one. Yeah. Um, there, Bill Evian, uh, who ended up, you know, basically he's the executive director and kind of the figurehead behind Inetta, right. had come to Microsoft and said, "Wouldn't this be great if we could put something together to support user groups?" And it happened that the guy that he was talking to was a fellow named Eric Ewing who was up in the Visual Studio marketing area and is basically in charge of, I don't know, I would call it buzz and so on. I mean, you know, the influentials and, and all of those people in the industry and said, hey, wouldn't that be great if we could, you know, put this together? And, and one of the great things that, you know, we could provide to user groups is, is some of these world-class speakers. So out of that came the idea that we needed to have a, a list of, they were in, first called rock stars, Right. You know, who are these guys that we could parachute in there? And girls. What's that? And girls. Guys and girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You used the collective guys. Yeah, that was that, that's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, to help, you know, drive attendance to the user group. And uh, we started out very, very strongly. And uh, I judge that because everybody in the world wanted to be on the Speakers Bureau. Right. You know, it, it's grown now to in the U.S. being 39 uh, speakers, and I think there's about another dozen in Europe and about the same in Latin America, and uh, they're just kind of organizing throughout the Asia-Pacific region. One of, the, one of the things I really appreciate about what you've brought to that is your focus on uh, speakers who are actually writing applications and doing business solutions. You know, uh, the guys who do the components is important, but uh, most of the people who come to user groups aren't your component developers, but they're your business developers. Right. That's actually one of the things that um, I guess we touched on this in the VV versus C Sharp thing. You know, early on, we were talking about, you know, the lower level, I don't want to call them bit twiddlers, but the guru level people for building infrastructure bits. And that, that's important. You're Juval Lowy's of the world. Yeah, Jeff yeah. Richter and so on. Jeff Richter. I mean, and... You know, these guys are gods. But that doesn't mean that they're going to go out and build the business applications for that. They build the things that these applications are built on. Platform. Right. Infrastructure. Code. Yeah, components. Right. And one of the other difficulties, though, is that there's so much focus on that, that these people who are out in the field who are building these things are very, it's very much harder to know who they are. Right. You know, and, and that's a, certainly an issue with any client reference, like Harry mentioned Thompson and so on. So many of these organizations put so much effort into creating stuff that, that helps them do their thing, they don't want to tell the rest of the world how it's done. Right. Yeah. 
That's a good point. You know, they kind of wave their hands and say, yeah, yeah, we use this stuff. But no, we're not going to tell you how we did it. That's our, that's our advantage. Yeah. Um, going along with that is something that I, uh, my new hot button with Inetta is trying to get Inetta to support corporate or organizational user groups. And the idea here is, you know, there are groups inside of major organizations. I've spoken at Boeing uh, a couple of times, but we don't know who they are, right? Many organizations do not want to tell the outside world what technologies they use or are going to use and, and so on. And they're very, very careful about uh, being references for vendors and so on. Plus, they have security concerns. They don't want just, you know, a bunch of random people showing up on their, you know, on their their organization's property, and so on. So these things tend to be very closed. Uh, they happen in the nine-to-five business world kind of uh, basis, and it's it's hard to know who these guys are. Yeah, right. But still, we need to be able to support them. They yeah. are the ones that are that are making the decisions and building the things that are going to be making you know the Microsoft platform as it were successful. Uh, and it, you know, it's just in, really important that we figure out who they are and how best to support them. The uh, the uh, the people that I talk to at these Ineta groups, and I've done a lot of them now, um, they're very mixed groups. I mean, there are some. There's always a small percentage that are the hardcore, hardcore nerds. You know, the guys we're talking about, and many of them are. I think I I would call them nine to five programmers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of nine to five programmers. Except they're going to those user group meetings, which are in the evening. Well, okay, but you know, nine I mean. to five plus. Nine to five plus, good, good uh, dis- distinction there, and um, and then there's just you know your intermediate level to expert level programmers. So what I'm saying is you have programmers from all areas, and it's very hard for them to decide on you know the kinds of talks to have and to the kinds of uh, kinds of speakers to come in and 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 talk. In fact, that we we are also doing that right now. We we look periodically to expand the Ineta Speakers Bureau. And one of the things that we have to do is figure out what's going to be hot in the next year or so. Right. Everybody's seen Windows Forms, ASP.NET, yeah. web services, and what are people going to want to see? And that's, you know, I've been doing some stuff around uh, the architecture, best practices, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly Agile XP, uh, team programming development, all of those things are going to be key. Um, possibly platform integration. This is a weird one. You know, if you ask a Microsoft guy, you know, hey, how about integrating with Java? You get back a, well, that, you know, I, you know, we don't do that. Microsoft rules. You can do anything with it, and I don't have to worry about it. Right. The reality hey, is, a guy from my book, my guy from my group wrote the book on .NET and J2 interoperability. Well, he wrote a book, maybe not the book, but just want to point that out. Is that the book that Ted uh, referenced in his talk? Um, What's his name? Simon, Simon Guest. Simon Guest. Yeah, that's the one. Right. Yeah. And .NET and J2EE interoperability toolkit. Right, and he said he said, and I don't know if you agree with this, that that's like the only book out there that's that's good. Pag's got a book, exactly. uh, but I haven't read that one. <laughs> okay. Um, Simon's got a lot of uh, publicity uh, inside and outside, and it's a and it's a, a very good book. Um, but actually, then the patterns and practices guys have uh, a book that actually shows you more more of the how to do it. As opposed to the uh, the why and the, the higher level stuff. Yeah. Well, I want to take this moment to uh, to ask the listeners who were listening when we gave away the uh, the uh, namespace of the week to go ahead to the website and tell us what it is now. And uh, another thing, Rory, 
is that uh, we are giving away a ticket to Tech Ed, right? Right. We, we didn't mention that earlier. We're giving a ticket away to Tech Ed. We said we would we would uh, give it away in the month of April, sometime between now and the end of April. Well, that basically doesn't leave very much time. Does that include the pre-con? <laughs> Smart ass. Well, no, the... the you know, we're doing the best of the gap, the guidance about patterns. I don't know if it includes the pre-con. Okay. I don't know. We'll find out. But it's basically for Microsoft, and it's a ticket to Tech Ed. Um, I don't know how many extras you get with that. If you get, I'm willing to throw in. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm willing to throw in that if it doesn't include the pre-con, um, I will get them in. To... Just don't come to me for it, man. Yeah, <laughs> I'll figure it out somehow. All right, it's all it's all on Keith's head. Right. The best of the gap. <laughs> Well, we won't be um, uh, we won't be giving away the ticket today. I'm sorry. In fact, I'm not in the office. I'm in Orlando, so I'm not exactly sure what we're giving away. But uh, I think we may have run out of. And I'm going to get boo hiss hiss boo. I think we may have run out of boxes of uh, Windows Server 2003. But I think we have some other good stuff, like uh, an office or or a Visual Studio or something kicking around. So. So the winner will get something good, no matter what. So before we, uh, before we give away the whatever it is we're giving away, let me ask you guys, Keith and Harry, respectively, if you have any last-minute words of wisdom to uh, impart on the listening public. Yes. All right, Keith, go ahead. Uh, the first one is, and this comes back to the VBC Sharp thing, is you know, building infrastructure is, is great. What, what is absolutely the most critical thing for your careers, I think, is that you do not lose sight of what users need to get done and keep your feet as firmly in the side of actually solving users' problems as possible. Okay. That's a good point. I remember a point you were going to make a long time ago when we started talking about doing the show was about how, uh, you know, there's more job security in architecture than there is in development, or at least what you think. Yeah, I mean... You know, ultimately down the road, I think some of this stuff's going to just be done in the tool. I mean, we have Microsoft's been reasonably good about doing one-way code generation. Yeah, and been so good about round tripping it back into the tool and the model, but that yeah. will come. Okay. <laughs> and and being the guy that writes the low-level code um, isn't going to be that important. I mean, already today we're already compiling to an intermediate language, and then we just assume that it gets done to machine language. All right. Okay, Harry, your turn. Well, I'd, I'd like to say something about just, you know, there's big change in architecture coming, so flexibility is probably the most important thing, and keeping abreast of the, the changes that are occurring. I work very closely with the MSDN group, and we publish the Architecture Center on MSDN, msdn.microsoft.com slash architecture. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of great content up there for our, about architecture. I referenced uh, Pat Howland's Metropolis talk with, and Keith Short's uh, talk on modeling. Both of those are available as part of the architecture strategy series. And we'll provide links to the listeners on our site for those. And we've also got the journal, which is up there. So, I mean, we're we, we're in a really exciting time of change. We're at the beginning of this revolution. Not, you know, for people who think that we're not, we're, I, I think there's great change coming. And to add something to what Keith was talking about, you know, there's much more job security in solving big problems than solving small problems, regardless of whether it's software or whatever. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the, what you're seeing happening today around, you know, job security is that the, the, the things that we know how to do really well, because we've been doing them for the last, you know, five to ten years, maybe not always on .NET, uh, well, definitely not on .NET for ten years, 
but those yeah. problems are, are known problems, and it's relatively, you know, solving them is is not a particularly uh, huge skill anymore. It's not. It's the figuring stuff out that's new that people don't know how to do. That's the really important stuff, and right. so spending your time on that is probably much more important than uh, from a job security perspective mm-hmm. than on the stuff that, as as Keith points out, you know, at some point maybe automated to the point of you know just being a part of the tool. Right. Okay. Well, we have a winner, uh, Rory, the winner for our our stuff, our our prize, whatever that is, goes to John Deary from BigPumpkins.com. Congratulations, John. Yeah. You're the proud owner of something. We don't know what it is yet, but it'll be good, I promise. And, uh, you know, worst case scenario, we'll send you a wheel of cheese or something, some wine. No, I'm just kidding. That is a worst case scenario. That's a serious worst case scenario. Okay, well, uh, listen, guys, I, this has been a great show. It's been a, a little bit less jocular than most of our shows, but, uh, you know, it's a serious topic, and uh, we wanted to give you guys uh, an opportunity to talk. So uh, thanks. And uh, You're welcome. Yeah, I hope to uh, catch you guys at TechEd or sometime soon. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be the one running around like a chicken with his head cut off. All right, well, we'll hang out. We'll have some coffee. and Come by our cabana. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time on Dot Rocks. Cool. Bye. Bye.